0: All right. Well, welcome back to the second session of our Lord's Supper workshop. We've. I hope that you've watched the uh, the first session to get a, a theological, biblical, historical foundation for the supper. We're now going to apply some of those things. So, if you didn't watch that session, this one uh, may be hard for you. But we're glad you're here. So, as we talk about some of these theological issues, let me let me just throw out some real questions that I think pastors have to deal with, and and let me just go ahead and say this because i say this in just about every event we do in the center a lot of the folks who use our resources are students uh, or alumni or friends of the seminary some have a lot of experience in ministry and some have very little experience in ministry and so we want to try to make sure we hit that line so let me just be very very clear and say this up front if if you're a new pastor elder, pastor, whatever they're calling you there, you need to carefully discuss with them what their traditions are about the Lord's Supper. Uh, That doesn't mean that you're not going to necessarily try to educate them, perhaps even change some of those traditions as time goes on. But I have seen several, and I'm not exaggerating, several guys get in trouble because they messed around with the traditions of the Lord's Supper that lord's supper table that big wooden thing that some churches have out front is a sacred cow to some it might have a bronze plaque on it and and moving even moving furniture around can be a big deal um i i know a story where a pastor came in and the tradition at that church were the deacons always helped prepare for the suppers one of the things that deacons did when they deeked, they they did the lord's supper and so the, the pastor would meet with the deacons. They would choreograph and even rehearse. They knew where they were going to stand. They knew how they were going to distribute the elements, etc. And then the deacons came in on the Saturday or the early Sunday morning or whatever, and they prepared the elements in the table. And it was a big deal to the deacons. Well, this new pastor comes in, and he thinks, oh, I'm just going to surprise everybody. We're going to have the Lord's Supper this Sunday. And goes in and prepares it all himself and does it in a very different way than they had been doing it. And that guy was not the pastor of that church. Six months later, and the and the controversy was about that supper. He 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 defiled something they considered holy. Now I recognize the the biblical errors and the the traditions of man. I get all that, but be wise enough when you first go to a church. Have a long discussion with that with them. When, in my very first senior pastoral role. I had been an associate pastor of everything for about 150 years, finally became a senior pastor, which was not necessarily a promotion, but just different, but I was it. I was the only paid person. It had just not, it had just stopped being a church plant. So I had a a, a few deacons. We met together. We're going to have our first Lord's Supper. Okay. We, I met together with those guys. We were choreographing it out. I did the Lord's Supper. The only, I, you know, I'd i never led, I'd never officiated over a Lord's Supper. I'd been a part of it as a staff person and thing. I'd never been the officiator. And I, the only way I knew how to do it was how the pastors that I'd served under did it. And so I learned from them. And so there was a chair here and there was a chair there. And then these guys had their ideas. And so we worked together to figure out the choreography. Well, and they said, well, here's what we're going to, we're going to wear our suits Sunday morning. This is a or true story, we're going to wear our suits Sunday morning to do the Lord's Supper. Because this was kind of a country, small town, and these guys were farmers. They didn't have, you know, a lot of them didn't wear suits normally. So they said, all right, it's your call. You guys want to wear, we're going to wear suits. We're going to dress up. It's going to be a big deal. We're going to make a, we're going to do this special. We're going to be special and do the Lord's Supper, right? Well, Deacon Dan wasn't there that that day. So, Brother John, can you go tell Deacon Dan to wear a suit Sunday morning so he'll be sure he knows to wear a suit? So sent word to Deacon Dan to wear a suit. Well, Sunday morning comes around, Deacon Dan's not there. Sunday night rolls around, we had services Sunday night, Deacon Dan's not back. Next thing I hear on Monday is Deacon Dan's upset with me. He didn't realize that we were going to become the rich fancy church. And I literally had to go out Monday night to the mountain where Deacon Dan lived, to his dirt floor house, And talked to Deacon Dan, and Deacon Dan had to explain to me he didn't own a suit, and he wasn't going to go to a church where he had to wear a suit. And Deacon Dan almost quit the church because of the suit and the Lord's Supper. It's one of my Lord's Supper stories. So you never know, even in the details, how that's going to impact somebody. Now, we know what the Bible teaches. We're talking about that. We're going to talk about it now. But be aware of your context. Overseas, the way they observe the Lord's Supper is different. So be aware of how uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper, one of the great lessons I learned about the Lord's Supper was from my many, many trips to Africa. We we teach courses there. And in the African church, they'll spend days praying and fasting before the Lord's Supper. They announce weeks in advance that the Lord's Supper is coming. And you're expected then to spend the last two to three days praying and fasting very diligently before you observe the supper they take it that that seriously on that level so let's talk about some of these things when should we take the how often should we take the lord's supper where is it okay to take the lord's supper is it okay for anyone to in a sense officiate over the lord's supper and also do these elements matter and why so let's talk about let's talk about frequency how often should we take the lord's supper I'm gonna look at Dr. Whitfield.
1: Okay, Well, the church that I, I gather with on Sunday morning, we we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Uh, we follow what we believe is the biblical pattern that as when the church gathered um, it seems to it seems to be the biblical pattern. I don't know that there's a biblical mandate for that though. I, I do I do believe I'm convinced it's the biblical pattern. I don't necessarily think there's a biblical mandate. Uh, I grew up in a church that took the Lord's Supper once a quarter. Uh, I pastored a church we took the Lord's Supper. Uh, once a month. Um, I think you can f- be faithful to the ordinance and and um, and practice it some more regularly more irregularly. Um, the argument that you hear a lot of times with not doing it every week is it kind of gets old. Um, I'm not really persuaded by that argument because um, we do a lot of things all the time and yeah they have a tendency to get old um, but We don't think that we shouldn't do those all the time because they may get old. Um, Actually, I'm persuaded by the argument that more frequency helps us to live out the meaning of the Lord's Supper because it's in front of us more regularly and we're confronted by it and we're celebrating it and experiencing it more regularly. So I'm actually persuaded the argument that more frequency helps us live it out and understand the significance of it than less frequency. But I don't think there's a biblical mandate to do it every week. I think there's a biblical pattern uh, but there's there's a difference between a pattern and a mandate.
0: Okay, you want to add anything to that? Yeah,
2: I think I think historically the early church did observe it uh, weekly, and we also have from the the early writings that, uh, much like you said, Dr. Ewart, uh, they took great pains to um, to fast and to prepare for themselves with that uh, with that in mind, and and so even even the language of sort of what is traditionally Baptistic quarterly. Uh, that's really sort of a Reformation-forward phenomenon, and that was really the consequence of, for instance, in the Swiss Confederation, uh, that was Zwingli's attempt to uh, to place more of a primacy upon the, the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word. And he thought that because the Mass at the time, the observance of the Mass in the Roman Catholic way according to the, sort of the traditions of the late medieval church, that that was the centerpiece of the church and the liturgy. And so as a means of sort of moving that to the side uh, that he wanted to promote the preaching of God's word, that he wanted to move it actually uh, in terms of just the, the observance.
0: Sure. So, so let me move then to, and I'm going to put these two together because I think sometimes there's a connection. Um, who, who can officiate over the supper? But then also I want to go ahead and say who can, uh, who can partake of the supper because there can be a connection between those two things. And so, and so what, wh- where are we going to land biblically, theologically? I know traditionally it's all over the place. But, but who can officiate? And then also let's, let's talk open, closed. Let's talk about why, why not. Yeah. What are the issues there?
1: Well, the question about officiate it, it kind of brings us back to the other question: What's biblically mandated? You know, what's the biblical example? Well, here we don't even have much of an example. Um, we're not told. We're told that Jesus officiates the first one. We're not really told who's taking, who's doing it in in, in Corinth, and whoever's doing it is not doing it right. Um, and so that's about all we got. Um, and so, so now it gets to the question of what does it mean in the context of the local church? And who would be the appropriate person to help the church understand and live out its meaning? Um, So, is there a wrong or a right way with respect to officiate? Could anyone do it? I think probably so. But is this a sign of the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel to the people of God? Um, And as the people participate in it, they are hearing the word and responding to the word. I think it is. So because of that for me, I think regularly it would be done by an elder or a pastor. Because the elder or the pastor is the one who is leading the people of God regularly to hear the gospel and to respond to it. But that doesn't mean that someone else couldn't do it. It just means I think because of the significance in the local church context of what it means as a sign of the word. um, And the elders are the servants of the word. I think that's probably the most
2: appropriate way to do it. Yeah, I mean, in in the 5th century, Augustine um, puts a huge stamp on the church's thought on this when he uh, argues that the, the efficacious nature of these, it ceases to be the supper unless it is observed by somebody who has been properly ordained. And so for the church for hundreds of years, it is sort of thought that once you're ordained, something ontologically changes in you. You're now a member of the clergy, you actually are able to dispense these uh, which otherwise would just would would not be the supper in and of itself and so uh, when it came time to the reformers to push back on this notion uh, they, they pushed back on the mechanical way in which this was understood but all of the reformers thought it was best left to the the, the clergy it was best left to the pastors to the elders as a matter of order uh, and so for me I think that you know I want to at least in my own context I want to follow in that I think that while I agree with Dr. Whitfield that technically anyone who's a believer can administer them, ordained or not, I would argue that it has to be done under the authority of the elder or elders of the church, depending on whether they had a single or plurality.
0: Well, and that that transition is, uh, transitions us right back into this idea of who should participate in the supper. Because is the Lord's supper an aspect of church accountability, even? even to I use the word church discipline. Uh, it, in other words, um, I know churches uh, to where when they participate in the Lord's Supper, anyone who is not a member of that specific local body is dismissed and asked to leave the room. I know that context. I know contexts to where if you're not a member of that local specific church, you can stay in the room, but you're not to take the supper, you're to simply observe others participating in the supper, learn the lessons from it, that kind of thing. And then I also, I know the context of if you're a believer, uh, some people say a baptized believer, then you're welcome to participate us, with us in the Lord's Supper. If you're not, if you've not been saved, if you've not, and, the, and baptism sometimes gets entered into that language, and I think as a, just a sign, I guess, of, of perhaps faithful church membership, maybe that's what that's supposed to symbolize, that you can participate in the supper with us. And then I've also seen to where nothing's said and everybody in the room, you know, participates in the Lord's Supper. Or perhaps some nuance would be if you know you have sin in your life, then you stay out and everybody else participates. And, and I've seen it done in such a way to where it's totally up to whoever's sitting in the, the pews or the seats, but I've also seen to where it's there, there's, a, there's a policing action, an accountability action that's almost taking place from the platform itself. So where are, you know, where are we going to land on this? And, and these guys, who goes out, they go out to churches, and they're going to land. I mean, in, in any, And I'm telling you, probably in North Carolina, where we're filming this, North Carolina Baptist Churches, you may very well have every one of those contexts that I just mentioned. So let's give them some advice or some guidance or some help
1: well you just put out a whole bunch of stuff so i don't even know where to start but let me come back to the connection with discipline um and i keep coming back to this because it's the case and we've got to be aware of this otherwise we'll let our tradition um inform the way we read scripture and now there's not an explicit passage of scripture that connects discipline with the lord's supper um so as we think through this we're we're thinking biblically and theologically and thinking through the lens of the gospel as we put this into practice. I do think, though, there are some things that helps us connect them theologically and biblically, and that is communion. And back to the passage we talked about before, 1 Corinthians 11, what's the issue there? Is that they're not honoring the union of the body. That's the problem. Well, what's the problem with discipline? The discipline is people's lives are not in harmony with living in union with the body of Christ. And so that's the reason we discipline people, because your life is, you're walking in a way that's not in union with what the body of Christ is called to do. Um, so they're not in union. It's not, it's not, it could be that there is out-and-out out warfare, there's division taking place. It could be that your life isn't just, it's not in step with the people of God. Um, so at this point, communion and discipline come together. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's brought together but, but we don't think about it in those terms You know, it's just been something that's been handed down to us But if we think about what's taking place with discipline What we're saying is That we want you to be a part of us But you're not walking with us And because of that we have to discipline you To call you to repentance To walk with us again And that's why I think We, uh, we, we do need to fence the table Or to use your word police the table As it relates to whether people are in union with the body or not.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing to think about is, um, you know, the language of whether the, the table is going to be open or, or or closed. And however you want to understand the close in terms of specific denominations, however you want to couch that language. Um, one of One of the things that historically Baptists have affirmed is, they have historically affirmed the idea of, of closed or clo- or close or closed communion. That is, we do want in some way to set the parameters on who is going to observe. And I think part of that is not just the language of discipline. It ties in with our understanding of the church and of baptism. So we're very, very quick to say someone cannot become a member of this church unless they have observed believers' baptism. And so for those who would want to you know, open the table to anyone, uh, or even anyone who's a, a follower of Jesus, uh, there is some discontinuity in the way in which we're understanding the, the ordinances or these sacraments. Uh, so in order to find a way of affirming the continuity, we do, we do affirm what the church as Baptists, the church is a regenerate body uh, of gathered people who have been immersed, who have been baptized as believers. And so then that separates and tells us who is then gathered as the local church and then who then would be able to have access uh, to the table. And so I think Dr. Whitfield's right then. That becomes also the means of which we hold each other accountable. Uh, We you know, if you're outside of that body, if you're outside of that 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 fellowship, it becomes hard to recognize whether someone's walking in accordance with their profession of faith or not.
1: So, so in these terms that uh, Dr. Eckers just walked through with us, um, it's interesting. In each of them, you're emphasizing something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, closed communion—that is, it's only for a local congregation. What you're emphasizing is the union of this particular body and it's living out the gospel together. And this particular body's proclamation of the gospel to the community around it. That's what you're emphasizing. And the ability of this particular body to hold one another accountable. Um, for, for open communion, that is on the other side of the spectrum, what you're emphasizing is this is the Lord's table. And everybody that's united to Christ through his death, Burial and resurrection and through receiving the gospel and faith, everybody who's united is welcome to his table. So that's what you're that's what you're emphasizing With, with with close communion. What you're emphasizing is this is a church ordinance. This belongs to the church. And as Baptists, we believe that the church has two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism for us is believers baptism. And because it's a church ordinance, it's for church members. And we believe a rightly ordered church member is a baptized believer. So as we think about these categories, we have to think about in terms of what is it that we're emphasizing. All of these things are right. But what are you emphasizing? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and so then it's also, uh, I, I've had, I've had a, this discussion. I was going to use a different word, but I've had this discussion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says, that let a man examine himself. Uh, to see whether he's worthy to participate in the supper so if i'm to examine myself why are the where are there these supper police out there who are denying me or telling me that i can't participate in the supper that i'm not worthy in some way and so this this idea of accountability even gets nuanced in those ways
1: well i mean the the obvious reason is that uh, in first corinthians 11 the guy who doesn't examine himself gets sick to death so we're just saying be careful you know you might not make it out of here <laughs> um we do it because we're we're brotherhood you know we have responsibility for ourselves but we also have responsibility for one another
0: it's always amazing how difficult it is for human beings to view accountability as redemptive and gracious when in fact that's what we're we're, we're, we may be saving your life (laughs) by helping you
2: yeah i mean i think it, it ties in with like what dr whitfield said it ties into the the communion that that local community is ultimately realizing. And I think on this point, is there a self-examination? Yes. But I would also think that in my local church context, the people who I am gathered with, they know me well enough to know when I'm not walking in accordance with my confession of faith, that they would be the ones to step in at that point point. And to point out that the disconnect, in fact, this is the language of Luther and his understanding of the priesthood of all believers. We're given access to God, not for ourselves first and foremost, but we're actually given access to God for other people, for other people in the community. And so it becomes a way in which as a community, we recognize these things. And so if I have sin, for instance, not, you know, not recognizing that and partaking of the elements with sin it actually does affect the body because we don't sin in a vacuum. And my sin has an impact upon the entire body corporately.
1: And the particular admonition there is to examine yourself in light of the body. You know, the problem there is, now I think there could be a more broader application. But if we just narrow in on the text, the problem that is happening here is that people have come to the supper without recognizing who they're coming with, and in light of the union of the body. So for somebody to stand up and say, examine yourself in light of the body, all he's doing is saying, look around the room. You're in a room. Have you come to this room? Have you come to this table with a recognition of the body that you're a part of? And so it's very appropriate for a pastor to do that.
2: Yeah. I can't help here, Dr. Ewitt, as well to hear, and I affirm exactly what Dr. Whitfield's saying just how much this pushes against and how countercultural it is to our Western American 21st century context that is so individualistic, that focuses upon me and my consumption of things in the local church. And so to this end, then, it is very communal. And I think to your point, then, how exactly you take this matters greatly because just the practice itself speaks to your understanding of whether you are going to passively receive this or whether you're going to actively participate in it.
0: Yeah, and, and I really do think this is really important for, the, for everybody to pick up on what you just said, but what you're both saying, and you've, you've mentioned it now many times because it is the context of 1 Corinthians 11. And I do think it's really, because I think sometimes people look at coming to the Lord's Supper as just this moment for me personally to get my act together with God and it's like it doesn't matter if there's anybody else there or not yeah. this is just it's just but but i think sometimes that's the way our worship is Period. We sing that way sometimes and we worship that way. Where, you know, I, it's always fascinating to me if I can participate in a Sunday morning, if that's your traditional time to worship, if I can participate in a traditional Sunday morning worship service and it didn't matter whether there was anybody else in the room with me or not, and there was no impact about the fact that I'm with other people or not, then, then I mean, I can do my, that in my prayer closet. I mean, why am I even coming to corporate worship? And part of what we're looking at here is I think sometimes the people look at this as an opportunity to kind of rededicate my life to Christ, which is fine and good. And and I'm going to confess my own sins and I'm going to get my own life together with Christ. And the supper is kind of a benchmark moment for me to do that. But without recognizing that I'm part of this larger community. And the impact of that larger community both ways, I, I think it's significant.
1: And, and this is why you brought this up earlier, I think, um, in your earlier questions, is why I would discourage a youth minister from practicing the Lord's Supper. Or a small group. Yeah, at, at, uh, at a beach retreat. Um, does, it, does it mean if you do it, it's necessarily wrong? I, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. But in doing it that way, are you rightly understanding what it represents?
0: Or, or at a wedding, even sometimes, it's fascinating to me. At a wedding. Weddings are always interesting to me. I mean, if, if just the bride and groom participate in the supper, and they're both believers, and I mean, is that an okay thing? And it's just, it just seems, it just seems weird to me. I mean, I know it's common in a lot of practices. I don't. I've never done it in all in the many, many weddings I've done. But it just seems odd to me, you know, to do it there.
2: Yeah, I think I was going to bring the same point up. I think that you've got to be careful recognizing that the context that it's given in is for the local church. And so these things that you've mentioned, parachurch organizations, weddings, Baptists have historically steered away from that language uh, and, and observing it at those times. But let me also remind you that Baptists have also not necessarily been consistent in this as well, because the other thing Baptists do, especially in our modern context now, is we have churches that are multi-site. We have churches that are multi-service. And so one of the things that I always want to do in that context is just remind churches that function like that, while there may not be strict biblical you know, arguments against that, if this is really for the church at a minimum, I want to just simply ask, can you find ways in which that multi-site church can gather as a collective body to observe that? Can you find ways in which that church that you know, meets at, at 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11, can you find a way for all of those folks to get together? Because it is for the church, and so there really is, you know, we really do demarcate on the basis of, of just pragmatism at that point.
0: Especially if you could do that every now and then, especially. I mean, what, that'd be that'd be a, a very special time together. And, and that brings up, uh, and I'm 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 not I'm very familiar with churches who observe the Lord's Supper weekly. Um, one of the things that I would recommend to them and to everyone is is every now and then make the entire service, um, uh, and it may be if you're an expositional preacher, as you you know you're preaching through Corinthians when you get to First Corinthians 11, but but. But every now and then, the entire service really point to, sermon points to, everything points to what the supper's about every now and then just for that discipleship moment. Let me, let me ask this important question, though, before we move. So, so do the elements matter? Does it matter whether we use a certain type of bread? Does it matter whether you use the cool little plastic cups? What matters in these elemental things?
1: Well, matters is an interesting word, isn't it? Yes. I mean... Um, I mean i because I keep coming back to this, I don't think that we have a prescription. You know we do have a pattern in the in the New Testament um, and even in the Old Testament as it relates to leaven and unleaven um, and uh, we have some biblical teaching as, as it relates to leaven and unleaven as, it, as in terms of our own lives um, do, Does it need to be a whole loaf so that it's broken? Well, we have some we have a pattern in scripture for that as well, you know. Uh, does it uh, does it need to be grape juice? Or does it need to be something that comes from the fruit of the vine, if you will? Um, well, that seems to be the biblical pattern. Um, so does it matter? Yes, it matters. Um, if you're in a place where you have tea and rice, and that's all you got, can you get at the significance of the meaning of the Lord's Supper with tea and rice in that context? Absolutely you can't. Um, but if you're in a place where you can... Practice the Lord's Supper with things that are more descriptive of what's in the biblical text. I think you should. I think it's helpful. Um, I'm of the mind that I think one loaf that's broken in front of the congregation helps get at the union of the body, um, and so I, I like that. Do I think that um, there's a biblical mandate for that? No, Not necessarily, uh, but I like it. And so, I, but I do think that matters. I think. Uh, The the church I attended, we've done it Since I've been there for the last three years We've done it a couple of different ways I think we're doing it better now than we've ever done it Um, And um, We're doing a couple of different things That's taken place But it used to be that we would just go As as you'd like to to the table And take it Uh, I felt like that was not capturing the body Then we started breaking the bread but still, going to the tables. Now we're handing it out, sitting in the in the pews. So where it's more communal. I think that's better. I think all of that matters. Um, but do I? Can I say chapter and verse? You got to do it this way. No, I can't.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing that that you touch on there, um, you know, as a picture of what we're remembering, to find something that is as close to what the scripture says, or something that stirs in our mind the remembrance that this is the body and the blood of Christ. That's why the preference, even in Baptistic circles, is to go with grape juice as opposed to Gatorade, because the grape juice is something that has, even just in terms of color, it has continuity with that. And so I think it's it's not of major importance, but it's also not of no consequence, uh, as it were. And then I think to your other point that Dr. Whitfield was saying, listen— You're always teaching your people something, whether you know it or not, in your observance of this. And so, one loaf, one cup, come up, come down. You are speaking to what's going on here. Now, traditionally, you think back to even Roman Catholicism, because of what uh, Roman Catholics understood that to be, the body and the blood of Christ. This is where you had people that would come up, and they would... You would actually have the priest that would place the hosts, the, the, the bread, on their tongue. That's a very passive way of thinking about it. Um, you know, for, for us, do you want your people to be participating in this? Do you want a participatory element in this? Well, then have them come up. Even if you want to use plates, have them come up and, and participate in this. And as well, how exactly are you going to observe this? If you have them come up. Are they going to partake of it then? Are they going to take it back with them? Because what you can end up doing, and what, what I would encourage you to do is think through the process of this, mm-hmm. because a lot of times we'll do something, we'll do stations, for instance, and there's no instruction, and the people don't know what, what to do. And so you actually have three observances going on at once. I've seen this take place, where people come up, they'll receive the, you know, the, the cup and the, and the bread, they'll take it right there in front of the elder or pastor or maybe they'll take it back to their seat They'll contemplate. They'll they'll remember Christ, and then take it when they're ready. Or they may take it, go back to their seat, and wait because they think the whole congregation is going to take it at once for the communal element. You actually have three people, uh, three different ways of observing it. And those people that waited, well, now they got to fire it and shotgun it down because they're out of time. And so, uh, you know, it's almost like the, the 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 sell-by date is gone, and we got to we got to do this now. And so. I would just encourage you to think through what you're doing. You're always teaching your people something about this. And so how you administer, what you're administering, it does matter, though maybe not in the, in the broader sense of the word in which you're using. It.
1: I just want to underscore this. As we've prepared for this, you've, uh, we, we've had these different categories, the biblical, the theological, the historical, the practical, and the choreography. Well, this is one of the places where all of that comes together, and it's all richly theological. You know, how just to underscore what uh, Dr. Eckert is saying, how we do this is theological. So what I would say in terms of pastoral wisdom, if you get to a place and the choreography doesn't emphasize some things you want to emphasize... Find out what the choreography does emphasize and start teaching your people right there what this thing means because it is a robust, beautiful sign that God's given his church and you can find some place to get started right. and start teaching them. We do this this way for this reason, whether they've ever thought about it or not. And if you want to move them in a different different place, get them used to thinking about the glory of this thing and how what, it, how, what they do matters. And so then you as you introduce new things. You say, well, this matters too. Let me show you how. Yeah.
0: And again, because I'm always the bearer of the horror stories, um, be careful when you're new. Uh, I've known pastors who've come in and they've changed the elements without discussing it in any way. And the previous pastor had had some pretty strong teachings about the elements, and they got into a lot of trouble. Uh, there's a lot of proactive teaching that can happen, for example, with the bread. One, one of my favorite things that we used to do, Teresa and I would, my wife and I would do this, with those, either the other pastors or the deacons or whoever in that context uh, were um, administering the supper, we would get together and make homemade unleavened bread together uh, in big sheets. Um, and we would talk about the fact that this isn't just anybody this isn't just any body on the cross. This is a sinless, perfect body. And when you make unleavened bread, you have to pierce it or to rise. And so this is this pierced, sinless body that's on the cross. And, 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 and not so much that whether that's necessary or not, but just in a proactive way. It, it was neat just among the leaders for us to do that together. And we would actually make these big sheets. And it was cool because we would bring the big, bigger sheets out, and so if we could still break the bigger sheet into smaller sheets and we were able to have the common loaf idea and and frankly it just tastes so much better than these I don't I don't know what they make that you buy at the store these little cubes I don't know what those are made out of but they but say they're edible they say they are it's styrofoam but but uh, but yeah it was really fun and you can google a recipe for unleavened it's not hard but it would just make big cookie sheets full of this unleavened bread and then we could break it and and, we, and then we would teach the people that we just did this as leaders together and we were observing this together. And it became a cool part of the tradition and the teaching of, uh, of the church. And so any time I could use an element to proactively teach a better symbol, to remember this is also, we're remembering this Passover, this Old Testament Passover back there, this, this, this unblemished lamb, this perfect sacrifice… And and to make those connections with the leaven of Exodus, uh, and uh, and that nature. So so don't miss those opportunities along the way. So one one so in a couple scenarios then, in today's culture, today's church in America especially. What are you going to do as a church leader when there is someone that you know. You know they're not living. According to, the word and the will of God. Uh, An example that was shared and asked of me was an openly uh, homosexual couple. They were not church members, but because of the way the church observed the Lord's Supper, they could claim to be believers, uh, as others could too, and still participate in the Supper, but everyone knew. So how do you deal, and I don't want to point out the sin of homosexuality is somehow worse than other known sin that might be being practiced by people out there. But as a church leader, I know that that person, am I, am I trying to stop them? Am I going to try to get with them afterwards? What, what, what are we going to do in
1: practice here? I won't let Dr. Ecker answer that question. That's good. <laughs> this, is a, this, is, this, is a, this is a profoundly difficult question, particularly if you practice anything else other than closed communion, right? So if you practice closed communion, then... It, it becomes a little bit easier for you, um, and so one of the reasons it's difficult is because you're leading people in worship who aren't under your authority. Um, so this this becomes really really challenging. Um, I think though, even if they're not under your authority, we have responsibility for those who call upon in the name of the Lord. We have responsibility for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that responsibility is not the same level of responsibility, but we do have responsibility for them. And we have a responsibility anyone who would name the name of, the, of Christ to disciple them at some level. And if they're underneath your um, leadership in a corporate gathering, then you have that responsibility. So uh, one thing you want, you want to do is you, I think you want to fence the table at some level. You want to, you want to remind people what this means and who, um, in terms of your church, who is welcome to the table. And you want to make that clear to them. Uh, and then, then, the other thing in that moment, um, I think you you also you want to be honoring to the rest of the body and not disruptive. Um, so you don't slap it out of their hands. I don't think
0: you don't right? tackle them in the pew.
1: No, I don't. I don't think so because ultimately their accountability is before the Lord, and they are responsible for their actions. Um, but they're there. They're under your leadership. They're under your teaching of the word. Um, You've seen them participate in something, and here's the concern here, is that they don't understand that their life and their practice are in disharmony. And you have the responsibility to point that out to them.
0: So when you visit with them later in their living room and the first thing they say to you is, well how do you know that the people sitting all around me weren't sinners too? You need to be ready. And you need to be ready to have that kind of conversation Uh, That's difficult. I know of a real situation to where um, someone who is in known sin, I'll leave that there, there was partaking of the supper, and I mean the pastor could not even get to the piano after the service before church members were rushing down the aisle to talk about how the supper had been defiled and made unholy because of this presence there. And so it's a real situation, and you're going to have to be prepared, especially those of you with less ministry experience you're going to have to be prepared to deal with this so the and this is what the, the the main point is which is what you're saying the more proactively i can teach well the more proactively i can say this is what the supper is the more proactively i can teach this is who should protect partake of the supper uh, the better off you're going to be because then you can say well i have said that, you remember i said this and remember i said this and 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 that teaching is going to be crucial so let's talk a little bit about choreography before we're done. Because, I, again, some of you may have uh, uh, administered the Lord's Supper a, a thousand times. Some who are watching this will have never done this. One of my concerns is that we have seminary graduates who've never baptized anybody. They've never performed a wedding. They've never done a funeral. And when we did our funeral workshop, I had several people come to me and say, I've never been to a funeral before, let alone officiated a funeral. So, so, and the Lord's Supper is an interesting Choreography, it can be because there are so many different ways that it is observed. Again, as we've already mentioned, sometimes the people come forward and protect various stations or one table. And then do they, do they take? Do they go back and take? What do they do? Other times you pass uh, the plates, much like an offering, uh, a plate goes. But, but what you're going to want to do is, and normally 1 Corinthians 11 seems to be the quoted passage. Most often some people go to the gospel stories, but more often than not, it seems that we will quote on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He took bread out of first Corinthians 11. And what you'll do is you'll administer (coughs) the bread. You'll say these verses. There'll be a prayer either before or after or in those middles. And then you'll lead and people follow. And then you'll do the cup and you'll hold up a cup and you'll talk about this as the new covenant in my blood. And you'll, again, quote those passages. You'll, you'll pray or you'll have one of the other leaders pray or, or, or uh, before to ask the Lord to bless the bread and to bless the cup. And, and, uh, and there might be moments of silent reflection in between these moments. Uh, and then you'll lead them in the cup and you'll say that and then you're going to lead them. I personally much prefer the, the per- participation to be unit, in unity, whether you come forward and take it back or whether you sit in the pew and get it. I like everyone eating the bread at the same time. I like everyone drinking the cup at the same time. Again, there's not a biblical mandate, but I just like it because of what we've been talking about, because of the sense of the unity of the body. A lot of churches don't do that. So when you first get there, what is this choreography? Sometimes there'll be a cloth that covers the elements. And I mean, literally you and the other elder, pastor, deacons, whoever's it's like, it's like folding the American flag ceremony uh, before the elements, and you have to go through that first. And so there'll be this other covering, and, and you'll do that. And then, and, and you, you literally, and I'm telling you, you think this is funny what I'm going to say, but you need to practice this. Because listen to this you, you, you need to practice these things. How do I take a lid off, and where do I set that on the table? and what do I do with that, and where do I put that back and do we put the cloth back on after it 's over and and the choreography of the cloth and the lids and the cups and who fills these cups and who's getting the bread and and uh, and the order of that so uh, so I really do believe in your first ministry scenarios where you are participating. In the administration of the supper, especially early on, get together with those folks we had we had lord's Supper practice uh, that we would get together because we did not do it weekly, and so uh, we weren 't as prepared every, week, every time we did it so and we had rotating people who helped lead it often. different people would lead different deacons or different pastors and so uh, we actually got together for a few minutes, and uh, I had one deacon officer who had a had a chart he had a drawing of the whole sanctuary and he had numbered circles Um, and he was he was a cpa and he had all these numbered circles and you're number one and everybody got a copy and you're to have that memorized and and that's where you go so just think through the choreography any any added words from experience or funny stories or bad mistakes anybody has you want to share
1: you know, I, don't, I don't know if we've got a funny story or a bad mistake. I think it just maybe an admonition, um, is not to rush through it. Um, and this is one of the challenges of it being at the end of the service. I understand why we put it there. Uh, but one of the challenges, and particularly don't rush through it when you your first couple of times you're leading through it. You know, it's, it's okay. you're leading people through this. And if you rush through it, you're not going to lead them well. Um, just be patient. Um, explain and walk them through it, uh, and 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 relax a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is the sign that the Lord gave His church for us to experience the sacrifice of our Savior on our behalf. This is a wonderful thing. Relax and don't rush through it, and lead the people
2: to experience this. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, I think I would also um, I would also want to try as best I could to find a happy medium, uh, a confluence between both the somber nature of this because it is representative of the death uh, of Christ, but it's also a proclamation that he is coming. And so the way in which you celebrate it is something where you remember, which is sorrowful. But this is exciting because that body that was broken for you that blood that was spilt, that Jesus, the God-man, he is coming back. And so this becomes a proclamation. It becomes a forward-looking and eschatological event. And I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting a smile on my face just thinking about it. It doesn't just need to be somber. And so there, there is a sense in which you, you, you find both of those elements in there. And way, the way in which you, you teach on this, the way in which you observe it, it should, be, it should be expressed, both of those aspects. And I think for me as well, um, this is to be um, this is to be a, a participation. it is to be for the community. I think that God gave us these things they the sacraments specifically baptism and the supper. He gave them to us because we 're a bodily people. These things are are things that we need to wrap our hands around in terms of remembering and understanding the promises that God has given to us and so i don't I, I would just prefer personally that people participate in that, not just be passive uh, recipients uh, to it mm-hmm.
0: so surround it with appropriate scripture, surround it with prayer and and coordinate this with your worship leaders to think about the instrumental music that might be happening. think about what what are you going to sing uh, at the conclusion of the supper if you 're going to or or, or how you 're going to coordinate this with the music aspect of the moment to create an environment to where it helps your people reflectively um, think about the supper but also the celib- celebratory aspect of it as, as you make these proclamations hey guys thanks man thanks well, for man, doing this thank you. and uh... you know we we're uh, we'll always be adding more and more pieces to things like this and uh... we'll uh, look forward to seeing you guys at the next workshop or our authenticity series events or some of our other conferences and Go to the other resources on this recommended resource page and uh, check these things out. There's going to be a downloadable handout uh, that will accompany these videos with some of, the, some of the ideas, some of the teachings, some of the principles that you've heard, and we'll get that posted uh, very soon. So look on the website for that, get that downloadable. Hopefully you could use that maybe as a teaching time. Use it in a small group setting or a class of some kind or with your leadership and just talk through some of these important issues about the supper. So thank you all for being here. Thank you all for watching. We look forward to seeing you again uh, very, very soon.